others too, and Bourgoyne kept repeating in his strong French accent, Impossible! Impossible! Pas impossible, she snapped. Collect yourself. I knew this would happen, but not so soon. Help me by doing as I say and keep your tears for later. I'm weary of life, and God will take care of me and forgive me. She did not say what there was to forgive for she was sure her place in heaven was secure. Driven by febrile energy, they all worked without ceasing through the late hours as she made a detailed will, the last of many, leaving keepsakes and small legacies to all who had served her during her imprisonment. There was not much left to bequeath, and it pained her that the best of the jewellery she had once owned, and always treasured so much, had been stolen from her long ago by members of her own family. A flattering portrait of herself was sent to a cousin, who was a Jesuit priest at Douai, and provision made for hiring horses to carry her servants away from Fotheringay after she died. They must not be condemned to staying on in this cold, inhospitable place, she thought. She composed a formally phrased letter to her twenty-year-old son James, the King of Scotland. What does he look like now? Whom does he resemble? she wondered, but would never know. How would he react to the killing of his mother? With indifference, most likely, for he'd done nothing to try to save her or intercede with Elizabeth on her behalf. Perhaps he was so unfilial because he had no memory of a mother. At their last meeting, when he was ten months old, he'd scratched her face in his baby struggles to get out of her arms. Another letter of useless protestations of innocence was written to Elizabeth Tudor, and one to her brother-in-law, King Henry III of France. To him she wrote, I am to be executed at eight in the morning like a criminal, but I am innocent of any crime. At the foot of the page she signed her name and added a footnote, Wednesday at two in the morning. At last, exhausted, she leaned her head on one long, elegant hand and gave a little sob and said, I only wish I could speak to a priest. I would like to be shriven for the last time. Melville cursed. God damn Paulet for forbidding you that comfort, madame. But he can't take away my consolation in Christ, she assured him. Hollow-cheeked with exhaustion, she let her women help her into a high bed, enclosed behind beautiful curtains she had embroidered with hunting scenes during the long years of her imprisonment. Lying in the middle of the mattress, with a serving woman on her right-hand side and another on her left, it pleased her, as it had always done, to realise she was a good eight inches taller than the tallest of them. Only Seton had been her size, and that was one of the reasons they admired each other so much. When her candle was snuffed, she closed her eyes and kissed the jewelled cross that hung around her neck. But it was impossible to rest, because, malicious as ever... Paulet had ordered three guards to march up and down the corridor outside her room all night in case she tried to escape. The thudding of their boots made sleep impossible. Lying in the darkness, she tried not to anticipate what was going to happen in a few hours. The thought of her head being severed from her body made her shiver with dread, and she stroked the skin of her throat with her fingertips and silently prayed, Dear God, grant that it be quick. Don't let me feel too much pain. At last, with supreme self-mastery, she drove the horrible fears away 
and turned her mind back to more pleasant things. With love, she remembered her childhood and her mother, Mary of Guise. Only in France had she been truly happy, but she'd been exiled from there for so long. Heaven must be like Fontainebleau, she thought. It would certainly not be like grey, rain-swept Edinburgh, a place she hated. It pleased her to concentrate on happy memories, memories of dancing, hunting and listening to music, especially to poor Davy Rizzio's lute-playing and his sweet singing voice. Then she remembered her second husband, Henry Darnley, whom she had thought so handsome and charming before he showed his true character. Her three husbands paraded before her mind's eye. First came sweet-natured Francois, who died too young. He was followed by dandified Darnley, who only brought her disillusionment. The last was Jamie Bothwell.